Hola, everybody. Welcome to the Unicorn Millionaire Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Stover. I'm a non-binary Latinx money coach helping my first-gen clients become millionaires. I'm a formerly undocumented Mexican-American and currently digital nomad traveling all over the world. And I'm super excited to have you here along with me on my journey. I talk about personal finance, money mindset, working, unicorns, rainbows, you name it. We're here, we're queer, and we are going to build wealth for ourselves and our communities. Hello, everybody. How is it going? How are you doing? I am here in DC. I'm in a house that I'm pet sitting for through rover.com. Um, because I love dogs, love animals, but I also love catching flights and traveling and going where I want to go. So I am here in DC dog sitting for the summer. I've been here after spending a year and a half in Mexico. I decided to come back to DC to hang out with friends and reconnect with people and go to the Smithsonian museums and I'm having the best summer of my life here. So (laughs) that's how it's been going so far with me. This is actually my very first podcast episode ever, which is super exciting. And I feel like it's about time for me to record this. I love talking to y'all about my work, about how I help my clients, about just normalizing building wealth for LGBT, BIPOC, first gen, marginalized folk in general. And so I'm really excited to start this journey with y'all. I love listening to podcasts and I decided to start one because I do love doing masterclasses and Instagram lives. You can catch me on my Instagram at Traveler Charlie, but I also like not having to stare at a screen. (laughs) So that's why I'm starting, starting this podcast so that I can connect with all y'all who have that Zoom burnout and are not trying to look at a screen all the time and can just listen to me and, and share, hopefully, with whomever you think this podcast will help, whether you're just chilling before bed or have a six-hour long road trip and you want to listen to this podcast, I'm very grateful that you chose to listen to this podcast. And so today's episode is going to talk about why I'm a money coach. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a non-binary Latinx money coach, and I help my first-gen clients become millionaires. And today, I wanted to do kind of a Q&A and just answer some questions that people have asked me about my journey and talk about that so that y'all can get to know me a little bit better, okay? So we're going to go way back in time (laughs) to the start of my life, (laughs) I was born in 1990. For some of y'all, that might be that I'm hella young. Some of y'all Gen Zers might think that I'm old. It's all good. Time is relative. Age ain't nothing but a number. But we're here. We're queer. And I'm going to talk to you about my journey. So something that people have asked me is, have you always been interested in money? And to that, I say that for the longest time, I was scared of money. So I was born in Morelia, Mexico, and I moved to rural Washington State at age three. We moved to a tiny town called Moses Lake, Washington, in between Spokane and Seattle. 
there was hella white people and I'm Latinx, but I'm also white. I have white privilege, but I just remember going to ballet class and feeling like the brownest kid in the room and the curviest kid in the room. Uh, and there was not a lot of diversity ethnically and religious wise. Yes, there were some Mexican migrants who would go there and work in the apple orchards seasonally, but overall it was a very white Christian conservative community. I'm hella queer. And I remember going to dances with cis white Mormon boys who were very nice, but I'm not really into dating boys or Mormon boys at this time. <laughs> and I remember growing up any town with a Costco to me was a huge city. So we would drive about an hour and a half, two hours to go to the nearest city with a Costco sometimes on weekends. So that gives you a snapshot of the kind of place that I grew up in. We had no family or friends there. My dad married my mom in Mexico, in Morelia, Michoacan. He was 29. My mom was 17. She had me when she was 21. Super young mom. My dad's family had more wealth. And my dad was basically given an inheritance. And he chose a random place in the middle of nowhere, far away from our family, so that he could buy a house and have low cost of living and not really have to work much other than doing a very risky investments in real estate. So as you can imagine, I grew up with a lot of very strange money trauma where we would eat rice and beans. My mom would go through the, the washing machine looking for extra change. She'd take me to the grocery store and always tell me to buy the cheapest thing. Uh, which is still something that I do when I go to the grocery store. Now I tell myself that it's okay to buy the nice kombucha sometimes and treat myself and that the world won't collapse. But healing this money trauma is a constant, intentional process. Like it's a lot easier once you're intentional about it and can really trace the wounds back to childhood. So... Yeah, I was raised poor. However, sometimes my grandpa would send my dad money randomly. So I was able to travel to places like Hawaii and New York City by the time I was 14. <laughs> but since we were undocumented, my dad used that to manipulate and control us. So I remember when we first got to the U.S., my mom didn't speak too much English, but my dad basically forced her to learn English. And I remember he wouldn't let her go to the DMV to get her driver's license. He said, oh, if you go to the DMV and get your driver's license, they'll deport us. I remember him telling me, don't tell people you were born in Los Angeles or they'll deport us. <laughs> so growing up, my last name was Johnson. So I feel like I need to write a book called Deporting the Johnsons because shit was crazy. And we were white and... Uh, had a house. So I just look back and I'm like, we had immense privilege being property owners, despite being undocumented. And we were undocumented because we overstayed our visa. So we flew over the border and simply overstayed our visa. And so that's like privileged, undocumented immigration, too, that I don't think people talk about enough. Everybody assumes that undocumented immigrants are crossing the Rio Grande in Mexico. And those are the people that are really risking their lives to get here. So I grew up with a lot of financial <laughs> trauma as well as being formally undocumented. So 
by the time I was 13, 14, my mom kind of got tired of my dad's act. And she said, your kids are basically American. They need to become citizens so they can go to college. And he'd gone to Notre Dame because his dad paid for him to go to college in the United States, even though he was raised in Mexico. But he was like, college is a scam. My kids don't need to go to college. They'll just make it work because he'd been used to being spoon-fed his life and having his family send him money randomly. So I think he just assumed that the same would magically happen for me. And that was definitely not the case. So my mom divorced my dad and married our next door neighbor, who was a uh, alcoholic, Trump supporter, very conservative, but he still treated me uh, like his kid in many more ways than my dad did. Growing up, I was homeschooled with my dad, and he would always yell at my brother and I. I think my dad was bipolar. He'd make us feel like we were stupid, even though we were learning things like French and trigonometry and doing all these things. We were never good enough, <laughs> which a lot of you, I feel, especially as first-gen immigrants, you're raised to feel like you're not good enough and that your parents will shame you in private, but will brag about you in public to friends, family, and, and the neighbors. And we didn't grow up with any family, so the neighbors were the people to impress when we'd have people over. And I remember our next door neighbor would always ask my mom with the nopal salad. She'd be like, Inge, what's this, what's this salad? What are these green things? And my mom would have to explain, that's nopal salad. It's cactus. Every single fucking time. <laughs> so in a nutshell, that was me growing up. Uh, it was rough. But within that time, I was a very creative kid. I was always drawing. I was escaping. That was my form of escapism in that trauma. I was drawing animals, going for walks, and doing a lot of creative writing stories, which was one of the few things my dad would assign me for my homeschooling homework that I actually enjoyed doing was writing stories. And I remember <laughs> imagining I was a de detective named Tuna Van Dyke who was solving mysteries in the Amazon rainforest. Growing up, I idolized Steve Irwin, I loved animals. I wanted to be a vet because animals like, don't talk back to you. They don't judge you. I grew up with a dog and I always felt safe around animals until I took biology and I was like, I don't give a fuck about the mitochondria of the cell. I'm going to be a history teacher because in my town, teachers were the ones with two-story houses, so they were rich. So I thought that I should become a teacher to make money. <laughs> I also thought I was middle class because I had a car until my brother had to tell me, no, we are not middle class. We are poor. Our parents just spend all the money that they have. And so growing up, I had little snippets of realizing my very unique privilege, yet also marginalization and disadvantage. After that, I was closeted because I did not feel safe coming out to anybody at all in my town. Didn't speak a word of it until I started questioning as soon as I started college at Wellesley College in Boston when I was 17, I flew in myself because my mom couldn't afford to check me in basically to college. So did that myself. And that was the first place where I started feeling like I could create community and feel safe coming out of the closet. And I have not looked back since then. Uh, I'm unabashedly myself. I tell everybody openly that I'm queer of course, when I travel, it's different because as queer people, we always have to gauge our sense of safety. So that's a little bit about me growing up and my experience with money and getting the fuck out of that tiny town where I did not feel safe to be myself.
So I went through a very emotionally turbulent childhood, just like so many kids of immigrants and witnessed a lot of financial manipulation. But within that, I was always a saver because I learned that it was scary to lose money. I remember my dad coming to me when I was 10 years old and asking to borrow money that he had given me. And as a kid, you kind of think, well, this is strange. Are parents supposed to do these things? But you don't know any better. <laughs> but I'll never forget that moment in which I felt that, okay, we're not financially safe. If you have to come to a child in order to create that sense of safety and financial stability for yourself, something is not okay and money is scary. And that is a belief that a lot of people still carry with them until this day, even whether they're 10 or 80 years old. It's really important to talk about these experiences so that we can recognize these thought patterns that aren't serving us in our wealth building journey so we can become millionaires and help our communities build wealth as well. So I'm really dedicated as a money coach now to shifting our mindset from scarcity to that of expansion and abundance, because that's definitely not what capitalism wants us to think, right? Capitalism wants us to stay scared and work for one employer while stockholders profit off of our labor, but it's all about unlearning that. So what made me take the leap and, and start my business is a question that I get asked a lot as well. And to that I say I was tired of being exploited for my labor in my 20s and being underpaid as a teacher, as a tour guide, and as a blogger. So after college, I felt that, oh, well, I was lucky enough to be able to go to college after becoming a U.S. citizen my senior year. I was sworn in at TD Garden with a bunch of other mostly Southeast Asian immigrants, even though I'd lived in the U.S. for 18 years up until that point. And I just thought, okay, well, now I can become a teacher and give back to other communities, but I'm not trying to move back to white rural Washington state. So let me move to San Antonio, Texas, where I worked at Burbank High School in the South Side with City Year doing ESL tutoring and math tutoring because I applied to Teach for America, but I did not get in. And I even applied twice. So I had to listen to the universe after a while when the universe told me that that was not the right fit for me. Um, so I, I taught in high schools. Then I moved back to Boston because I was like, well, I thought I hated Boston, but I really don't fit in in Texas with all these guns and sports bars. I like playing sports, but I don't like watching sports. And so I did not feel like I fit in in Texas, even though I miss the doceritas and the queso and that food is so good and the brisket. And my mouth is watering just thinking about it. Can I go back to Texas just for dinner and then leave, please? Uh, anyways. <laughs> so after Boston, I did the Peace Corps in Nicaragua where I taught English to high schoolers, but mostly high school teachers because they had no one to, to teach them English and work on their pronunciation. So that's something that I did. But we had a lot of time off. Class was always canceled because the socialist government uh, led by the dictator, Daniel Ortega, wants people to stay stupid. So I remember they would take off a week for Semana Santa. And then even after the week off, they're like, oh, we're going to take more days off to rest from the break that we took and things like that. So that was hard. But it's kind of like the same in the U.S. The U.S. public education system sucks and the government 
wants people to stay dumb. And that's why they don't teach financial literacy in public schools because they don't want us to learn all these things that I dedicate myself to talking about every day online and in person with people. So after the Peace Corps, I moved to Washington, D.C. to try to get a cushy government job, as one does after the Peace Corps. But there was the federal hiring freeze. As I moved here, when Donald Trump got elected, January of 2017, it was a very depressing time, but I still love all my friends and was happy to be in D.C. versus rural Washington State where I basically got kicked out of home and I did not feel welcome there again. And I have not been back since for about six years. Since that moment, I felt much safer being in Washington, D.C. Not to mention I was recovering from, from PTSD from having done the Peace Corps. I was assaulted, sexually assaulted, just went through a lot of stuff. And if you've ever talked to a Peace Corps returned volunteer or heard about it, there's some pretty wild things that happen during people's services. Uh, a couple months later, after I came back, a bunch of other volunteers were evacuated because there was political uprisings in Nicaragua because the government was deciding to start cutting social benefits even more. And people blockaded the streets and rioted and the government still cracked down and everything. So a lot of Peace Corps volunteers had to be evacuated, which was really hard for some people. I can't imagine that. Um, but yeah. I tried getting a job in D.C. and I got turned down when I was literally told in interviews that I would not be hired because I didn't have a master's. So instead of getting a government job that I thought I would be able to easily get, I was doing bike tours on the National Mall. After just having moved here, uh, two months after that, I started reading PDFs and learning about the National Mall's history and the different monuments and the white slave owner history like that of Thomas Jefferson and Ulysses S. Grant, <laughs> but it was cool to learn about things like the Japanese internment memorial and, and just show people around D.C. I helped people who live here and who were visiting from all over the world learn more about D.C., but it was just so interesting getting tipped for doing my job, and I thought, wow, this is so strange that I'm getting tipped for doing my job, yet as a teacher, I was exploited, underpaid, and I was never getting tipped for helping raise people's children for them, which says a lot about the public education system here. So when I was living here in DC, I was hustling and I just kept thinking, wow, I'm making the rent, living with four roommates, I'm hustling, but I can't be doing this until I'm 70. I want 70 or 80 year old Charlie to be good and taken care of. So I think I need to start learning about investing because a lot of my white middle-class friends kept talking about Roth IRAs and investing and letting your money grow itself for you. And I had a friend who was a financial advisor help me open up a Roth IRA and a brokerage account, robo-advisors. And all she had to show me was a chart of the stock market and all the potential growth that I'd miss out on. I wasn't making a lot at all. Uh, the most I've ever made working for anybody else was 40K. But... In that moment, I just learned that it's important to start while you're young and just let time do its thing. Time in the stock market is so much more important than timing the stock market. So that conversation changed my life. And then um, I started doing cross-country tour guiding tours for people from Europe and Australia to show them the national parks 
as an example of one <laughs> tour I did, I was trained to drive a 15 passenger van and hitch a trailer to it with camping materials and a, a stove. And I took a group of British people all the way from New York to Los Angeles myself as the driver and tour guide. And that happened in three weeks. And along the way, we'd camp and stuff. And then we went on the Vegas party bus at the stripper pole. But that job was also exploitative and exhausting, sometimes driving up to 10 hours a day and nearly falling asleep at the wheel. It was very intense. But I got to see so many parts of the U.S. that I never would have thought to visit because it's just so expensive to travel in the U.S. when you can just catch a flight to Latin America and see so much more on so much less money. Um, but in that time, I learned about credit card points hacking and investing because the white male, cis male tour guides talked about credit cards. And of course, they were trying to refer me to their credit cards. And I was skeptical. But once they explained how credit card bonus offers work and the fact that we can rack up points because for our job, we're not paid much, but we're always handling cash and getting reimbursed. It was just a no-brainer to hop on these bonus intro offers. And I thought, that sounds great because my crappy Bank of America travel rewards card's not giving me anything. So why not try it? I have a decent credit score, but let's do this. So that opened up Pandora's box and I was able to rack up thousands of dollars in points while still paying off my credit card every month in full. And I traveled to Latin America for six months alone, camping with a tent in my backpack and all of my clothes and belongings in a big backpack and a small backpack. And I spent three months in Colombia camping, couch surfing, staying in hostels, staying in hotels with my credit card points. Then I flew for New Year's to Uruguay and spent a week there, but it was pretty empty because everybody was in Brazil and Argentina. And then I crossed uh, this, I don't want to say the strait, not the ocean, not the river, a body of water, and got to Buenos Aires. And then from there, flew to Patagonia and camped by myself. But I was freezing my butt off in Patagonia. And I was in a single as fuck, one person tent that just screamed, this person is very single. <laughs> and I remember there were people in the tents next to me keeping each other warm in more ways than one. One couple started getting it on, but I was like, okay, thank God it's a straight couple. This is only going to last like three minutes. Let me just listen to a song and it'll be over. But I don't like the cold. I don't like it. I don't like snow. I don't like being cold. I'd rather be hot than cold. So um, I realized this, my time here is ending in the southern part of South America. Even though it's summer here, I'm still freezing my butt off. Let me go up to Santiago, Chile real quick to just check out the scene and go to the Museo de la Memoria that was all about the dictatorship in the, the 70s that overthrew este Salvador de Allende, Salvador Allende, Presidente Allende. Uh, learned all about that, the rich history there, and then flew from Santiago to Cancun to go to Tulum and Playa del Carmen and the Riviera Maya to soak up the sun and beach life. And I actually ended up moving there uh, when COVID had hit and completed my master's there. But at that time, I was traveling through Mexico and seeing the southern part of the country. I did the Carnaval in Veracruz. And I was always looking at 
how my brokerage account and my Roth IRA were constantly fluctuating. It was strange to me that it's not like a savings account where the money's there and you make interest. If you log on and check your investment accounts, it was wild to me to see that I could refresh the page and the amount would constantly be fluctuating and changing, which just goes to show that money isn't real. It is always changing and flowing. It comes and goes and it's unpredictable, but we assign so much value on money that I thought it was so cool that I was investing in stocks I didn't even understand, but I was doing it and I was setting my future self up. So I called my friend who had set me up with the investment accounts and I said, hey, should I get an MBA? Because I really love how you helped me and I want to help others do the same. And she said, no, just work for us. You can work as a stockbroker and then become a financial advisor and they'll pay for you to take your licenses. So I interviewed for that job with no finance experience whatsoever, but because I wanted to help people and was passionate about personal finance and listening to the Afford Anything podcast and helping others, that I landed a stockbroker job in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I remember when they were interviewing me, they were like, why are you, why do you want to come here to Indiana? And I said, I know it's not the hottest place for a queer person to live, which it wasn't but I'm here to learn and help people and make the most of the situation because everything is temporary. And boy, did I make the most of that shitty situation. Coworkers were never outwardly transphobic, but they would say transphobic things. I remember some days I would dress feminine and wear a dress, and the next day I'd wear like a tie and some suspenders because I thought I was so fancy for being a stockbroker, even though in reality we were just sitting in a call center answering calls all day and talking about the stock market. I just wanted to, you know, dress up like like the fox of Wall Street. I don't even want to say wolf, the fox (laughs) of Wall Street. But I remember getting stared at when trying to go to the restroom because I present as male and I would always use the women's bathroom and I remember when they have like one or two colleagues in the entire year, over a year that I worked there, asked me what my pronouns were. So that was how that was. Oh, and clients telling me that I don't sound like a Charlie and that they want to talk to a male stockbroker. <laughs> so as you can see, I definitely did not want to stay there forever. And so I decided, well... I need to get out of here. And then COVID was hitting and I was so excited the stock market was going to crash because we'd had a great economy, not economy. The stock market was doing great for 10 years and all of a sudden stuff was on sale. Myself and my colleagues were salivating at the thought that stocks were going to be cheaper. And I just thought this is great for me, but what about my community and all these people that are calling and are going to be homeless because the stock market crashed? They don't understand how stocks work or they're going to go into more debt because people are going to lose their jobs. So I just had this knowing, this fissure within the American capitalist economy that things were never going to be the same economically and the people who are already somewhat good were going to benefit and leave the situation better off while people who had no financial literacy skills or awareness were going to be screwed over even more uh, in the U.S. And this is coming from somebody who's been on food stamps throughout my 20s with a college degree. 
the little social safety nets that the U.S. does offer are jokes, as we saw with these measly stimulus packages that are barely enough to pay for rent for a lot of people. But I also noticed that a lot of people who had money on, on the side were waiting for this dip. They had tens of thousands or millions of dollars in cash on the side, and they swooped in and bought houses for cheap, which is why the housing market is so inflated and stuff so expensive right now. The government lowered interest rates, making money cheap and accessible for two years, and now we have a recession going on because, in my opinion, the government waited way too long. And the, the lowering of the interest rates benefited corporations, of course. We still have not had uh, student loan forgiveness. <laughs> so if anything, this time has taught us that we can even still have a democratic president, but still people in the bottom are still going to suffer financially. So it's really up to us to learn about the system that we inherited, the capitalistic system we inherited against our will, so that we can benefit from it while we can, but then also break free from it. In my ideal world, I will no longer be investing in the U.S. stock market and these private companies and investing in my own business or other BIPOC-owned, marginalized community, queer-owned businesses and just cycling money to and from each other. To me, that's my ultimate vision of mutual aid. But in the meantime, I have to give myself grace and know that this is the system that we have for now. It's not like we can invest in nonprofits in our pensions and retirement funds. The system is this way for a reason. We're investing in private corporations and people's retirement accounts depend on their performance. So a lot of things that I learned working in finance and just as a human in America. So... It was a lot. So I quit my job and then I got a full-time social impact MBA at the Heller School at Brandeis because I'd done the Peace Corps and they had a partnership with Peace Corps. So I then moved to Denver and lived there for a few months with a friend and started my MBA so that I could get back to DC and finally get a job and not get turned back because I didn't have a master's. That was really the plan. But then I started doing money coaching on the side. I remember posting on my Instagram stories saying and thinking about doing credit card coaching <laughs> for points hacking because so many people kept DMing me asking me how I still had not run out of money yet <laughs> since I was obviously not making a lot. <laughs> I noticed a trend but that's advice I give other entrepreneurs many of whom are my clients are also entrepreneurs is if people keep asking you for very specific advice monetize it. You can grow that into a business. People feel good. They should feel good paying you for your services, whether it's emotional labor or intellectual labor. Life coaching, setting up a blog, negotiating salary, or my money coaching, these are all forms of emotional and intellectual labor, and we deserve to be compensated for it. Um, so that was the start of my money coaching journey. I used to just give one-on-one uh, -on -one sessions and then uh, moved to Denver and started just yeah studying for my MBA and doing one-on-one -on -one sessions on the side just getting referrals here and there through Facebook and I was definitely undercharging so it was hella easy for me to feel like oh I have clients all the time because I was undercharging which is another sign if you're swamped with clients you need to raise your prices especially if your clients are sending you tips or energetically showing you that you're undercharging so that's what I learned there but I just remember in October I got dumped 
I was dating somebody there in Denver and I was surrounded by Trump supporters. I was just a little bit outside of Colorado and Golden in a white neighborhood full of white Trump supporters and their make or keep America great again, 2020 signs. And I was like, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't care who wins this election. I'm out. So I remember signing up for a Southwest Chase card to work that bonus intro offer and got a free like $200 flight. I booked a ticket one way and moved to Playa del Carmen, which is about 45 minutes south of Cancun. Because I'd love Tulum, but it, Tulum's too expensive. All the Tuluminatis, all the LA, New York folks go there to party. So the mojitos there are basically the same as they would cost in New York. And I'm not about that life. And I didn't really like the vibe of Cancun. It felt very touristy when I was there. It felt like Las Vegas by the beach, which might be fun for a little bit, but not to live. And it actually never even been in, really in Playa del Carmen much. I just stopped there on the bus terminal on the way from Cancun to Tulum. But apparently, according to Google, a lot of digital nomads moved to Playa del Carmen. And uh, there's decent Wi-Fi, and it's very walkable and bikeable. And I was like, all right, let me just try this out. I didn't know a single person there. I had no plan, but I booked a month-long Airbnb to get those credit card points. And because you get a discount when you book Airbnbs, for a week or a month for long-term stays. So to me, it's just wired in me to make, to aprovechar, to make the most of every situation that I'm given. So I stayed there for a year and a half, completed my MBA. But in the meantime, I hired a business coach, Kat Del Carmen. Yes, my Guatemalan queen. I love you, Kat. And she rocked my world. She changed my life. I was going from making a couple hundred bucks a month to right after paying her. At the time when she was just starting, she only charged $3,000 for three months weekly coaching, which was a steal. I sold my Tesla stock to pay for that. And after a month of working with her and doing the damn work, I made about $7,500 back in return because I shifted from just doing one-off calls with anybody to working with people who wanted to come in and, and talk to me every two weeks and see consistent long-term results. So at the time, I was starting off with just a three-month program, and now I'm doing a six-month program where I focus on money mindsets, credit card bonus offers, getting you access to those bougie lounges with the unlimited mimosas at the airport, investing not just in retirement, but also in a brokerage account. So investing in lots of different investments, account types, and understanding what the hell we're doing in these investment accounts. It's not enough to just open an investment account. We have to understand what we're investing in within these investment accounts. Because if you're just having cash in a retirement or investment account, you're still losing value to inflation. It's important to have a solid emergency fund of six to 12 months of expenses build up in case something happens, but it's also to invest any leftover cash that you have because right now inflation is about 8% and you're only getting a 1% interest if that in your high yield savings account. So high yield savings accounts are a scam. Yes, I have them because I enjoy getting a slightly higher interest rate than in a crappy checking account, but at the end of the day, Every single day, 
your cash is losing value to inflation. And I really want that to sink in for people. As an example, I like to tell people is that when back in 1950, you could probably buy a house for like $2,000 and go to the movie theater and get a bag of popcorn for 50 cents. All right. Now a bag of popcorn at the movies can cost $10. It's because the value of money is lower, so you need more dollars to buy the same thing. If you have $10,000 today and just keep it there in cash in 10 years, it's going to be worth about only $4,300. If you invested that $10,000 in 10 years, it's going to be worth about $40,000. So we're in this for the long term. And so that's why it's important for me to take all the crappy experiences I had as a stockbroker with the asshole clients and convert that and alchemize those bad experiences into helping my community build wealth, helping my clients help themselves open up investment accounts and open up investment accounts for their parents. I have a lot of clients who are first gen. A lot of them are Latinx and their parents are in their 50s and don't have any retirement accounts. So the work that we're doing for ourselves is ultimately trickling down and helping our communities. So that's why I'm a money coach. And also because I believe in our community where we are the socially conscious funds. I feel like if our community had the money that Elon Musk had, we wouldn't be building rocket ships, blasting out into space, having these big dick competitions with each other. We'd be fixing stuff on the planet and trying to save the beautiful planet that we're on instead of trying to go to Mars or colonize space. It's ridiculous. So that's also why I'm a money coach. So I hope this episode has resonated with you and that you've gotten to know me a little bit more. Even if you already know me, (laughs) maybe you learned something new about me. So yeah, that's today's episode. If you're interested in working one-on-one with me, I am taking clients for my six months of coaching. And that's for folks who are really serious about putting their extra cash to work so that we can start embodying our millionaire selves now. We don't need to wait to have a million dollars sitting in our bank accounts because that's an arbitrary number for us to make baller life decisions and life moves. And calling in my future self is something that often allows me to help decisions in much easier, crisper ways. Like starting this podcast, my future self was like, just do it. doesn't have to be perfect. (laughs) Because my perfectionist self, uh, it gets in the way sometimes. So when we try to do something too well, we just end up not doing anything at all because we're afraid of failure. But I like to lead by example. Who am I to coach my clients to encourage them to fail if I'm not doing the same every day and seeking coaching myself and seeking support because we're all in this together. I'm also doing a masterclass about investing in brokerage accounts at the six-figure level on July 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can sign up for that. So go to the link in my bio, my Instagram. My website is travelercharlie.com. Feel free to review, share this episode with somebody that you feel like it could help. Give them a new perspective. And I appreciate you so much for listening. Yay! I feel like I want to break a pinata and celebrate that I just recorded my very first 
podcast episode. Hey. The information contained in the Unicorn Millionaire podcast is provided for general informational use only. Your purchase, download, and use of this material does not constitute a client relationship. The views expressed by the Unicorn Millionaire podcast hosts and guests are not intended to constitute accountant, legal, tax certified financial planner, stock advisor, or other professional advice. Users of this podcast material should not act upon this information. Users of this podcast material should do their own due diligence by independently verifying all information, products, and services mentioned with their own qualified professionals before making any decisions. We assume no responsibility for information contained in the Unicorn Millionaire podcast and disclaim all liability with respect to errors, inaccuracies, omissions, misleading, or defamatory statements. Users of this podcast accept and understand the terms of the disclaimer.